Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From this undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. John, it's always tricky for presidents in challenging times to get that balance right between optimism and recognizing the reality that most Americans are facing. And let's face it, George, uh, State of the Union address is the biggest audience that, that he, will, he will face. But State of the Union addresses rarely move the needle much. And Joe Biden needs to change the trajectory here. His approval ratings uh, are at the lowest point of his presidency, truly grim. Uh, if you look at his approval rating, it is virtually indistingu indistinguishable from where Donald Trump was at the various low points of his presidency. On oil leases, what this actually justifies in President Biden's view is the fact that we need to reduce our dependence on foreign oil, on oil in general, and, need to, and we need to look at other ways of, process, of having energy in our country and others. One of the interesting things, George, we've seen over the last week or so is that a number of European countries are recognizing they need to reduce their own reliance on Russian oil. If you're watching any level of news, even social media, you're seeing everything that's going on right now in the Ukraine. Break it down in layman's terms for people who don't understand what's going on and how can this directly affect the people of the United States. So Ukraine is a country in Europe. It exists next to another country called Russia. Russia is a bigger country. Russia is a powerful country. Russia decided to invade a smaller country called Ukraine. So basically that's wrong. This is a phenomenal negative psychological impact that COVID has had on the public psyche. And so you have an awful lot of people who are uh, notwithstanding the fact that uh, that uh, things have gotten so much better for them economically, uh, that they are thinking, but how do you get up in the morning feeling happy? Right. Happy that everything's all right. And one other note, Nora, the panel mentioned this. There were zero references to January 6th in the address tonight, even as the Attorney General Merrick Garland was sitting near the front, the man over... Speaker, on the last question, on the State of the Union, um, we did see numerous outbursts from Representative Goldberg and Green during President Biden's speech. Um, as I'm sure you probably remember, when Congressman Joe Wilson yelled, you lie, at President Obama in 2009, the House actually passed a, a resolution disapproval on that. Um, we haven't heard any talk of that now, but I'm wondering just what is your reaction to those outbursts? Should any action be taken in the end? What does it say about the House Representative? Let me just say this. I agree with what Senator Lindsey Graham said. Shut up. That's what he said to them. I think they should just shut up. Thank you all very much. Remember Helsinki? Oh, I, I mean, you have to go back to Helsinki. We were there, Christian and I sitting next to each other. And it's slack-jawed when former President Trump, at the time, President Trump defended Putin's take on 2016 and disagreed with his own 
head of national security, which led to the DNI right. contradicting well, him in real time. Because I covered former President Trump. I covered former President Trump. He likes strong men, remember. And so this is something that we saw consistently throughout sure. his presidency, Danny. Uh, it is. I think President Trump. President Trump's judgment on uh, Russia and on Putin has not been awesome. I think Mike Pompeo mm -hmm. misspoke. I don't think that Mike Pompeo actually he said it deeply, several times. Uh, I know, Andrea, but I don't think that's what he believes. Hang on. First he of all, there are four of you and one of me. I'm, I'm the only <laughs> Republican sitting here. Hang on a second. We're hey, not Republicans. We're Democrats. We're journalists. Three of us. I'm not, not going to touch that, babe. With uh, right-wing extremists having an entire network to espouse these kind of extremist beliefs and supporting uh, essentially an enemy of the United States, what does that mean for us? Because there are, it's not that they're saying these things, it's that the huge audience they have that consumes these things. Yeah, and it's the endurance of that audience and the fact that they've been doing this, um, you know, for such, uh, you know, for such a long time. Trump was installed as the president of the United States in order to weaken the alliances that were preventing Putin from achieving his goals, alliances like NATO. Are we are a stronger nation when we allow people to participate. And if we ever doubted that, the war that Putin is waging against Ukraine, President Zelensky said, and I'm going to paraphrase him probably poorly, he said, this isn't a war on Ukraine, this is a war on democracy in Ukraine. When we allow democracy to be overtaken by those who want to choose who can be heard, mm -hmm. and th those choices are not based on anything other than animus or inconvenience, then that is wrong. I am a Republican, the media jerk-off of the week. And welcome back to Flavor Politic Podcast. It's the 6th of March, year of our Lord, 2020. And what an intro. And I'm trying to lower the intros, but God bless America. Some of that shit, what a week. His polls suck. He didn't have time to talk about Afghanistan and dead soldiers. Kamala explaining stuff. Him saying, it's your fault we don't see how good he is. Mm. January 6th, Bobert. Andrea Mitchell, I watched that live, and I spit my monster out. I was just cracking up. You're not a journalist. Get the fuck out of here. And then the last two just fucking crazy. Just crazy, 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 craziness. Trump was installed. And my movement to make sure that only Democrats win elections is just like the Ukrainians. A lot of that going on today. But I wanted to go first up before we get to Ukraine. Um, yes, I'm wearing a I need ammunition shirt from Zelensky. Yes, I know he's corrupt. I could give two shits about it before it happened. But right now, home skillet's just, he's a badass. I mean, not on, like he's my idol. But our leaders would be in a bunker. Home skillets out there every day. Knowing that they can triangulate everything he does. So it, he's got to get my props on that. And I love this line. It's Churchillian. It's going to end up being like Churchill. Years from now, you're going to remember 
I need ammunition. I don't need a ride. That, that's one of the ones that isn't going to be fake. And I know the ghost of Ukraine and all this shit's all bullshit. I understand. Everybody plays propaganda in wars. We do. It's part of war. Um, but let's up front do the State of the Union with the media jerka of the week. I think the big picture, the president is going into this speech in a very difficult position. Our latest poll shows he has just a 37% approval rating. For the sake of the Ukrainians, I hope we don't say it didn't, you know, I hope we say, oh, it was about right. But I fear this is going to feel like a speech that didn't age well because of the lack of, I thought he'd spend more time in Ukraine, spend a little more time explaining why it is our fight as you said good versus evil explain what a little bit more and a little bit of the history of the defense of europe and a little bit of how why we're in this position why we have these alliances what what it all means and it just felt like an abrupt end after the 12 minutes of that and it felt like boy we could have had more there was more to say i think there was more that the public would have and then it turned look I do think he accomplished two important pieces of politics, saying the phrases secure our borders and fund our police. There are a lot of vulnerable Democrats and a lot of uh, House and Senate races that are relieved to hear the leader of the Democratic Party say those two phrases. But that's the politics of this. You're asking about Ukraine. It certainly didn't. It felt to me like uh, it could have had a lot more. I also think there was a, a strange moment at the end where he said, go get him. That was audible to the audience, and we're not quite sure what he means. I think he's talking about Vladimir Putin. John, you looked at me halfway through the State of the Union address and took note that there were very few overt uh, partisan moments where the, where the president went after the other party or things that they had done other than the tax cut from the previous administration, but he didn't mention the former president by name. There's certainly no mention of the words Donald Trump uh, in the speech, and uh, it didn't have a partisan edge to it. Look, there's a lot in the speech that Republicans will disagree with on the policy, uh, no question at all, but he didn't have a partisan edge to this speech. In fact, uh, the overriding message was one of unity. Uh, Cecilia mentioned on COVID. I think very importantly on COVID, he was echo echoing uh, many of the things that Republicans have been saying on COVID and the real frustrations that Americans have in red states and blue states after two years of restrictions and dealing with this pandemic, saying flatly, it's time for Americans to be back at work children must be back in schools uh, we are turning the page he's promised we'll be prepared if there are more variants but the message he was echoing there was one that was intended i think as much to speak to republicans as to anybody else and in speaking with some aides here at the white house watching this amid the pizza boxes and the empty beer cans we saw them earlier uh, they are pleased with uh, the bipartisan response or the bipartisan reception to this address one aide texted me too many bipartisan applause points to stop for the president plowed right through them uh, that unity Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez one of the things that you were just talking about in terms of the president's um, treatment of the issue of immigration talking to immigrants talking about dreamers for example um, I, 
I wanted to get your take on something that we know is coming, um, which is the massive refugee crisis that we are about to see in Europe that is caused by the Russian attack on, on Ukraine. So far, um, authorities say there's already two-thirds of a million people who have been displaced. We will likely see millions of people displaced. And not just in our country, but around the world, we have seen refugees and immigrants not just scapegoated, um, but demonized in a way that tends to uh, cross over into all sorts of politics. Now that we know a huge new migration is going to start because of that war, do you have caution or words of advice or lessons learned for your own party, for American politics generally, in terms of how to be smarter about those politics, about the inevitable demonization of those victimized people? Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, I think the world is watching and many immigrants and refugees are watching and how the world treats Ukraine should be and Ukrainian refugees should be how we are treating all refugees in the United States. I mean, especially when you look at such stark just juxtapositions when, where so many of, uh, of the factors are in common with Syria, for example. The way the world treated Syrian refugees versus the way that the world is greeting Ukrainian refugees is a very stark contrast. And we, you know, I, I, I think that the way that we are uh, looking at immediate granting of TPS to Ukrainian refugees, which is what we need to be doing, uh, as well as, as many others, is something that we really need to keep in mind. Because I do believe that, uh, for example, the thousands of people who tried to seek legal refuge on our southern border, how Haitian refugees have been treated by the United States, not just in past administrations, but frankly this one, uh, is not right. And we need, really need to make sure that when we talk about accepting refugees, that we are meaning it for everybody, no matter where you come from. Uh, but I do believe that this also presents a profound opportunity because of the amount of extraordinary support for Ukraine and Ukrainian refugees. If we grant TPS to Ukrainian refugees, this is also an opportunity to finally create a path to citizenship for TPS recipients. A lot of people don't know that, uh, that TPS recipients by and Thank you, uh, Anderson. Let's continue our analysis right now. Gloria, let me start with you. Uh, his bottom line, the president of the United States spent the first 12 minutes or so of this approximately one hour speech talking about Ukraine. His bottom line is when the history of this era is written, Putin's war on Ukraine will have left Russia weaker and the rest of the world stronger. The question, though, is how long is that going to take? Because right. this war is, by all accounts, only just beginning. Well, and I think he made the point, and he said, this is a real test. It's going to take time. He didn't say that it, it required any sacrifice on the part of Americans. Uh, what he did say is that, I want you to know that we're going to be okay. As, as the sort of soother, the empathetic president, don't worry about this. I got this. What he didn't do, and I, I agree with Fareed, what the president didn't do is, is really explain kind of why we're there in the first place, aside from Putin being evil, which we all understand. And I, I don't think he laid the groundwork as well as he perhaps could have done. Um, but in the end, he described what the battle is between democracy and autocracy. I wish he had gone into it sort of a little bit more about what happens when autocracies triumph. It was interesting, David Axelrod, because when it came to uh, what he was saying on Ukraine, 
That's where he got bipartisan support. Yeah. And, and, and I think they knew he would. He should have put it first because of the, uh, the, the moment we're in. But it also was uh, smart because that was, if, if you wanted to demonstrate unity, that was where you were going to get it. And he did get it. Uh, you know, I, I agree. Uh, that he didn't talk about the sacrifices involved. You know, it was a Churchillian speech that was more church than chill. He didn't give us the, he didn't give us, uh, you know, what it would cost us. But, and he didn't, as, as you say, he did not dwell enough on why it was so important to make these sacrifices. I mean, he is essentially, uh, should be rallying, and I think he did, rallying the American people. I would have spent more time on it, frankly. What do you think, Scott? I, I was underwhelmed by the Ukrainian piece, if only because he didn't tell us what other steps we could take. We've already taken military action off the table. He did uh, condemn Putin, and he did show solidarity to the American people with the Ukrainian people. That's great. But I was hoping for something big tonight, because this presidency needs a pivot, let's be honest, politically needs a pivot. He could have said we're going to ban imports of uh, gas and oil from Russia, like something like that, a big idea that would have really ratcheted up uh, American resolve, but he left that for a future date. And I don't know if we're ever going to get there, but I think a lot of Americans are asking, how serious are we if we're still going to be bringing in hundreds of thousands of barrels of Russian oil every day? How serious are we? What do you think, Harold? I, I thought totally different. I, first, first of all, I thought that was Joe Biden at his best. Uh, Uncle Joe is back. I thought he was, he was being uh, the leader. Listen, nobody believes in these American ideals more than Joe Biden. It's show tonight. He, he has spent his entire career standing for American unity at home. He stood for that and for American ideals abroad. And I thought, and listen, I have not seen unity in this country like I saw at the beginning of that speech. And I don't want to step on that. It is very, very important that we underscore to the world that every single person stood with Joe Biden tonight. Every Republican stood on their feet and, and the Ukrainians are not, but not by themselves. I, listen, I was impressed with the energy. I was impressed with if you didn't believe in democracy before, if you never heard of democracy and you just looked at the body language of this guy, this guy believed every word he said. And I think I'm, yeah, I'm no, proud tonight we have a leader like him. I'm yeah. proud tonight. You know, Gloria, as we take a look at this reaction coming in, uh, I think the president should be pretty pleased that Republicans, first of all, we're giving him a standing ovation on certain lines as far as Ukraine is concerned, but the reaction from Republicans on the Ukraine portion of his speech was pretty positive. Oh, well, it was very positive. I mean, when was the last time you saw a bipartisan standing ovation in the United States Congress? I can't remember the, the last time, uh, not in recent history, certainly not in the last four years or so. So, yes, and I think they knew that that was going to occur, and that was why they put it at the top of the speech. Obviously, it's on everyone's mind, issue number one, but there is a sense in this country, the longer this war goes on, the more public opinion has been shifting to being saying, you know what, we need to care about what goes on uh, in Ukraine. So I don't think they were surprised by it uh, in the White House. But that part of the speech, I think, was really well written. And Biden did try and appeal even on domestic policy to Republicans. It's not defund the police. And Abby, uh, I have to say, the, every president has to say the State of the Union is strong, even when it does not necessarily feel strong. There are a lot of hurting people out there. But that's quintessential Biden to say, and he, and he saved it for the end instead of the beginning of the speech, the state of the, our union is strong because you, the American people, are strong. Very Biden. Yeah, I mean, the, the, where they wanted to end on was basically also where they began. 
the end of the speech was about American values, just as it was in the beginning when he was talking about Ukraine. And uh, Biden wanting to make the point that uh, American unity is one of the things that he was elected to, to foster is still on the agenda. Um, that's a big part of what he uh, needs to convey to the American public, that he hasn't forgotten about that promise, uh, that the country's best days are ahead. Uh, there has been a lot of criticism of this president that maybe he's trying to force people to think that things are better than they are. But I think he was trying to say tomorrow will be better than today was, acknowledging the pain people are experiencing. I, I saw it totally different. I, first of all, I thought that was Joe Biden at his best. Uh, Uncle Joe is back. I thought he was he was being uh, the leader. Listen, nobody believes in these American ideals more than Joe Biden. It's show tonight. He, he has spent his entire career standing for American unity at home. He stood for that and for American ideals abroad. And I thought, and listen, I have not seen unity in this country like I saw at the beginning of that speech. And I don't want to step on that. It is very, very important that we underscore to the world that every single person stood with Joe Biden tonight. Every Republican stood on their feet and, and the Ukrainians are not, but not by themselves. I, listen, I was impressed with the energy. I was impressed with if you didn't believe in democracy before, if you never heard of democracy and you just looked at the body language of this guy, this guy believed everything. With us now here in Washington is Oleksandra Ustinova. She is a member of the Ukrainian parliament. Congresswoman, good morning to you. It's good, good to see you. I wish it was under better circumstances. To watch what's happening in your country is unthinkable. What do you think when you see those images from back home? Well, I start crying almost all the time. So as I start my every morning with texting my friends my family if they're okay because they're under heavy shell fires they're being bombed every day heavily bombed and uh, frankly speaking i was watching i think the whole ukraine was watching biden's speech last night yeah. president biden's speech the middle of the night but ukraine was watching ukraine was listening did you hear what you wanted and needed to hear from president biden to be honest it was a total disappointment for us Let's switch to some of the domestic issues that were raised last night. You know, there, yes. uh, the, the president made a point of saying, fund the police. He got uh, applause, it seems, from both sides of the aisle on that. But there was very little mention, very little mention of voter right, voting rights. Does this mean that that issue is on the back burner for the administration at this point in time? The president has been very clear. He was clear again last night in, in, in front of the members of the United States Congress. They must pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act and the Freedom to Vote Act. The president has said over and over again, and we have made very clear, that this is about protecting America's democracy against those various states in particular um, and state legislators and governors who are in a full-on assault on the right of every American who is eligible to actually be able to vote. I think that we have seen progress, but there's certainly more work to do. And the American people certainly are not feeling it right now. At least that's what's showing up in the polls. Can the president provide the kind of relief? I mean, unlike normal um, State of the Unions, there, there was no fact checking. We, we didn't fact check shit. No. No, we didn't. We, we did not fact check them. We just carried the water. We always carry the water. This is a fucking lie. But he, all he had was what lies. They ring the capital again. You know, borders in Ukraine are important. Borders around the capital are important. Borders down with Mexico, no. Even running little articles like this, like the New York Times, 
uh, weaponizing culture war. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. CNN post poll reaction to speech very positive forty one. Somewhat positive, 29, negative 29. Biden did enough to address the invasion of Ukraine, 69, 47. Inflation, 47. Violent crime, 46. Biden will handle the speech more confident, 30. And I want to meet those people. I just want to meet them. Because what the fucking fuck was this? We're cutting off Russia's largest banks in the international financial system. Preventing Russia's central bank from defending the Russell ruble. We spent months building coalitions of other freedom-loving nations in Europe and the Americas, to, from America to the Asian and African continents. And the cost, the threats to the America and America to the world keeps rising. Putin may circle Kiev with tanks, but he'll never gain the hearts and souls of the Iranian people. He'll never, he'll never extinguish their love of freedom. He met with a wall of strength he never anticipated or imagined. And a pound of Ukrainian people, the proud, proud people, pound for pound, ready to fight with every inch of energy they have. I call it building a better America. <laughs> because you can't build a wall high enough to keep out a, 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 a vaccine. The vaccine can stop the spread of these diseases. Because I know there's simply nothing beyond our, our capacity to compete for the jobs of the future. We also need a loving playing field that they later chose to parole to uh, patrol as police officers. Back to a no, norm, more normal routines. I can't promise a new variant won't come, but I can, I can promise you we'll do everything within our power to be ready if it does. Third. Ban <clears throat> assault weapons with high-capacity magazines hold up a hundred rounds. You think the deer are wearing Kevlar vests to make our forces more safer and be able to wage war more with more clarity? We're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. Many of you have been there. Go get him. Did anybody understand what he said? Go get him. And, and I'm not even going to crazy lady back there doing the shimmy shimmy and she had to be hopped up because he can't speak. I mean, it, it has to be tough. You're on the camera. Uh, Biden will never gain the hearts. Uh, Putin will never gain the heart and soul of the Iranian people. Ew. Ron Klain even went out and tried this fucking thing that 78% uh, approved. They said speech waters, not voter, Ron. Because all they have is lies. They just lie. And they get away with it because they know they have a, a, a water-carrying press. I mean, here's here's just a couple examples. All of a sudden, these same men who either have the same degrees or have seamlessly voted for people with those same degrees now see it a problem. See it as a problem where she's too elite or too out of touch. Where we know that she was a public defender, uh, the the first since Thurgood Marshall. I mean, the, her qualifications are, are longer than a CBS receipt. Uh, but we'll see <laughs> so many senators trying to justify their own racism and sexism when they seamlessly voted for Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Comey Barrett, where we can look at their CVs and they're abysmal and embarrassing to a certain extent about why they should be on the Supreme Court. Christina, I burst out laughing over your CVS receipt um, comment because it's true. Her qualifi qualifications are huge. And two, on the Washington Post editorial page today, the cartoon that we have there today s shows exactly what you're talking about with Judge Jackson pushing 
all of her qualifications on that trolley and with Justice Kavanaugh behind her saying, what, no beer? I think what you're saying right now is, is in the Trump era, there is this demand of Republicans, uh, of Republican politicians to put on this performative, trolley, cruel fight. Uh, because they think that's what worked for Donald Trump. They think that's what attracted uh, Republican voters to Donald Trump. In a lot of cases, they're right about that. And so I, I think they feel like if they just moved this confirmation through without you know, putting on the performative fight, um, then there would be backlash among the voters. Not likely that Republicans, even if they hurl racism, sexism, misogyny uh, at her into the process, that they can scuttle her nomination, is there? Well, look, I, I think if history is a guide, there's a couple of things we should point to, right, which is despite the, the comments that you've seen from a number of Republicans so far, which to Tim's point really does seem like kind of reflexive Republican pushback to anything this president does right now, largely as, as a messaging tool. Congressman, let me ask you about some of the comments that Governor Reynolds made about domestic policy. She argued specifically, and you heard her there in the clip that we just played, saying that schools should have reopened sooner, restrictions should have been lifted faster. Do you worry that that type of messaging could backfire at this point, given the fact that basically everything is opening up now? Well, I think the Republicans have been right all along on that. You look at the difference between the red states and the blue states and how they handled COVID with the restrictions and the mandates. The American people are clearly behind the red state policy with respect to COVID, especially when it comes to school children and masking. If we can, let me ask you about inflation. Uh, you witnessed prices going up across the board on products and on gas right now. The president said it's his number one priority, his top priority. Why not? Why shouldn't Republicans get on board with some of the agenda items that he's proposing that could help lower costs for Americans right now? Honestly, all we heard last night from his proposal to combat inflation was more government spending. And Republicans believe that that's what's created inflation, excessive government spending. Uh, the government's been spending too much money for the past two years, ever since the beginning of COVID. We've had too many COVID relief funds. We've had too many stimulus payments, uh, too much uh, extended unemployment. And but, sir, the as you solution... know, well, the stimulus payments helped a lot of Americans get out of the deep hole that they were in. The country's economy is now growing at the fastest space in decades, I think more than five, perhaps six percent, six plus percent, 6.6 .6 million jobs in the last year right now. So isn't that clear that some of that spending did have a real impact? And there are other ways you can do it without spending money, putting pressure on prescription drug companies and the like. Why not get on board with those things right now and take real action that puts money into Americans' wallets? I think most Republicans would support uh, prescription drug reform. Uh, one area that you need to look at is the PBMs, and I didn't hear that mentioned last night. But with respect to spending, uh, the economy's on fire. There's no question about that. There's no need to spend recklessly to continue to spend unnecessarily. And, and when the government prints money, it leads to inflation. So uh, we believe that if the government had just taken a, a much smaller role, that uh, we would have still enjoyed this robust economy without the inflation. The inflation attacks on yeah. everyone, especially the poor. Everybody on planet Earth knows Kavanaugh shit was bullshit. And the way they did Coney Bryant, I mean, what the fuck was, or Barrett, what the fuck was wrong with her? And then you see them attacking a GOP guy who's actually speaking truth. But no, there is no truth. You, Truth gets in the way of everything. And our media, they... 
Their whole purpose is to help the Democratic Party. Four takeaways. One, seizing on the bipartisanship of Ukraine. No, he didn't. Here's a reporter asking the same thing that you and I are asking. Can you give us uh, any sense of a timeline or a triggering event that would uh, result in this policy change regarding Russian oil and any decisions that may be forthcoming? Is that imminent or is there... uh, something that, you know, is there an event, an outside event that you're waiting for? I I wouldn't say, Kelly, it's an outside event. I think our continuing concern continues to be, um, uh, you know, everybody wants to hold President Putin and the Russian leadership uh, accountable. Uh, Everybody supports the efforts that the pres- President Biden has been leading around the world uh, to take, put in place uh, crippling financial sanctions, and they have had an enormous impact. Uh, but what we are also mindful of is not taking steps that ha- would have the impact of raising uh, energy prices, raising oil prices, raising gas prices for the American public. And we also are mindful of doing things in a way that is unified with our partners around the world. Can you speak to how the president has steeled himself, hardened himself, if you will? Uh, He's made a commitment not to put American troops uh, in a military position in Ukraine. You've outlined all the steps the U.S. and allies are taking, but he's also watching what is happening, as are many Americans who are concerned about the atrocities that are taking place, the loss of life, the civilians that are being affected. Does the U.S. just watch this get worse? Is that what we should all be prepared for? I, I would just argue we're hardly watching. Um, we have been, we have provided a billion dollars in military and security assistance, uh, in, including a range of defensive weapons that we have expedited delivery uh, to the Ukrainian leadership and Ukrainian military. We have been the largest provider of economic and humanitarian assistance. We have rallied the world to stand up against President Putin. We are not watching. The president is leading the world and responding to this. However, He is not going to put U.S. military, men and women serving, on the front lines of battle in Ukraine to fight Russia. That has never changed. That has never been his plan, never been his policy, and he has no intention of doing that. Go ahead. I mean, is it? We're just going to watch them all die? Okay. Speaking Republican language, including relatively light on true divisive issues. Oh, we talked about trannies, you jackass. Green energy, but no, he was speaking about border security. Wither, build back better. Uh, Shouted GOP attack on Biden broaches his dead son. No, we're sick of hearing about your dead son. It has nothing to do with the 13 people left in Afghanistan you didn't talk about. It has nothing to do with anything. Your son died of brain cancer. It's sad But I still remember you on a tarmac looking at the clock. That's what I remember. This is garbage. New York Times takes brutal dragging of absurd, mostly fault Biden fact check. On Tuesday night, the president spoke over now, blah, 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 blah. But the New York Times, okay, we fact checked Biden claimed during the stadium about strong U.S. job growth. It's partially true. The fact check rates the claim is partially true because the government only became collecting the data, da 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 da, and they changed it. I mean, if you go to you go to MTP and read the comments, you see why these guys only care about what the left thinks, because they're the only people. The, the left is a small minority of people, but they inundate stuff, and these idiots who don't live outside the bubble think that's what everybody thinks. not true 
but they don't know it's not true. Pearl clutching over Bobert. I'm not going to say anything. I, I don't really care. CNN Fact Squad takes Iowa Governor GOP rebuttal on DOJ surveilling angry parents. It's a fact. I mean, you don't want to report it, but it's a fact. It's true. The White House told them to get a letter and then Department of Education sent it to the FBI. It didn't come from the National Board of Association of fucking parent PTA bold fucking shit. I fucked that all up. But that's not where it came from. And that blue lawn lady, nobody checked that. Nobody checked that he got installed shit. It just was real. Just it's real. This is my favorite. The, the, Richard Marks is an idiot. I got it. But this is what they think. To those of us who are actual patriots, it is and has always been crystal clear if you're a white nationalist, if you're praising Putin, if you're against CRT, if you want to make it harder for POC to vote, if you defend January 6th, you're a traitor and an enemy to democracy. My reply as a 20-year Army vet who fought, I think what makes one a traitor is telling others what to think, feel, eat, drive, and speak. But that's these people. They're just trying to make this. I mean, for fuck's sake, if there was one of these, there was a thousand. On any normal day, the glaring hypocrisy of Ron DeSantis would make him the absolute worst. But nope, there's someone even worse out there. Might be time for Joe Biden to let us know what Kentaji Brown-Jackson's LSAT score was. What else she do in the LSATs? Why wouldn't he tell us that? That would settle the question conclusively as to whether she's a once-in-a-generation legal talent, the next one at hand. Weirdly enough, couldn't get into an Ivy Tuckums Carlson, never asked to see any other nominees' test scores. As Nicole Hannah-Jones so aptly tweeted, this is textbook racism, not even a dog whistle, outside of the ridiculous argument that scores to get into law school are the measure of qualification long after law school, plus a lengthy judicial career. The presumption that black people are dumb is standard white supremacy. Katanji Brown-Jackson has an extensive amount of experience. As Elliot Williams tweeted when she was nominated, imagine a supremely qualified SCOTUS nominee with two Harvard degrees with honors, a SCOTUS clerkship for the justice they'd replace, and two years as a federal judge. That's Chief Justice John Roberts. Katanji Brown-Jackson has all of that, plus seven more years as a judge. In contrast, Amy Coney Barrett was the least qualified nominee in recent history. And did Tuckums question her experience? He sure didn't. Instead, he said there was no question she was qualified for the job. I guess he knew just by looking at her. He then praised her remarkable family and mused that she was maybe the most impressive person to receive a Supreme Court nomination in memory. So for his... And now, live from Mar-a-Lago, it's the Fox News Ukrainian Invasion Celebration Spectacular with your hosts, Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram. <laughs> yeah. Good evening, everyone. I'm Tucker Carlson. I'm like a pair of boat shoes came to life. And I'm Laura Ingram, and when I watch Harry Potter, I root for Voldemort. <laughs> now, Laura, we got into a weird 
little bit of trouble for all the nice things we said about Russia and the mean things we said about Ukraine. Right. We did sound pretty awful in hindsight and foresight. Yeah. <laughs> I kept asking, why do we hate Putin? Aren't liberals in America even worse? Right. And I called the president of Ukraine pathetic. He stayed and fought with his people in the war, and I called him pathetic from a news desk in Washington. I kept saying we should be more worried about our own border getting invaded by Mexico. But in my defense, I am racist, so I thought that was true. But tonight, we're going to make it up to you. We're raising money for the real victims of this invasion, the oligarchs. Because we need to think about the babies. They're sugar babies who will pour vodka in their mouths. So many horny mouths to mm. feed. So please open your wallets, and because this is Fox News, you can either send money or take out a reverse mortgage. <laughs> so far, we've raised over 8.3 billion ruples, which comes out to almost $12. And th this is incredibly exciting. Former and current president of the United States, Donald Trump, is manning the phone lines himself. And you know, the thing about Rihanna is, you know what, she could pull it off, but uh, she could she could be nine months, the body's still incredible. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> but now you're gonna have a lot of women. We're seeing this right now, threes, fours, frankly, trolls wearing the same see-through shirts. And I, you know what, I hesitate to say whales because I know the whales are very popular with the whales. I do great with whales. You know, they come up to me on the beach and they say, thank you, Mr. President. You know, the blowhole's blasting away two, 300 feet in the air. It's how they salute me. <laughs> okay. Welcome back to you, Mr. President, uh, because our first guest is here. He's a great American patriot, so great that he left America and became a Russian citizen, the puffiest action star in the world, Steven Seagal. Thank you, thank you, Tucker. Oh, what a global crisis we are facing. And as someone who proudly pretends to be both Native American and Japanese, I feel for all people. Now, you're close with President Putin, right? Yes, Putin and I are, as they say in ancient Japan, Eskimo brothers. <laughs> so I will be honoring Putin by performing an authentic Taekwondo exhibition. Hiya! Now it's time to honor myself with a traditional Japanese shamrock shake. The official seasonal beverage of all Aikido exhibitions. Hiya! Thank you, Stephen. That's great. Now, let's check back in with the man who said Putin's invasion was very smart and also said China should invade Taiwan next. Mr. President? My favorite food is probably bread, you know, and more specifically, bun. I like bun. Bun is great, especially with respect to burger. And you know what? Now they want to go beyond burger. Can you believe that? I want to stay right at burger. Beyond is not good. Joe Biden has gone beyond burger, and it has not gone so well. And you know what? Neither has Reboot of Fresh Prince. It's very different, and I'm laughing, and I'm laughing, and I'm laughing, but I don't know why. Okay, I do hear a dial tone on the other end of that phone, so let's hear what kind of prizes we're giving away tonight. Laura, we're sending every Russian soldier a Fox News care package, and that includes a MyPillow, a six-month subscription to LifeLock, and 10 American flag catheters. All 
courtesy of tonight's sponsor, Acorn Stairlifts. You're going to heaven soon. Practice going up with Acorn Stairlifts. Mm. Now, please welcome America's first couple, the real Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, Don Jr. and Kimberly Guilfoyle. <laughs> performing a duet in honor of Russia and Ukraine coming together. Yeah! What? Tell me something, boy. Don't you love that big Russian convoy? Or do you need more? This invasion gets me so damn hard. In the shadow. We're far from the shallow now. I'm on the demon. We should take Ukraine. Sway more white than Guam. Right. Woo, yeah, I'm, I'm going to cut that one a little short. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Is, uh... with a mirrored counter nearby? Uh, yeah, man, it's Mar-a-Lago, okay? <laughs> All right, um, guys, you know, I, I do have a quick announcement. Um, is anybody uh, driving a yacht with a, a license plate, Niet means da, um, your boat is currently being towed by NATO. Right. Also, Putin has just criminalized free speech and shut down all independent news organizations. Yeah, so I'm thinking, can we please do that to CNN? <laughs> <laughs> Every time I laugh, an angel dies. Mm. <laughs> now, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be giving away a free T-shirt. That's right. The front says, I storm the Capitol. And the back says, this... That SNL thing is fucking crazy. I've watched Tucker. He's not rooting for Putin. He's just saying, why are we getting to this? What are we doing? Those are questions they did for 20 fucking years. It was why a registered Republican, they wouldn't even finance the war they voted for, but then they found a political tool when there were no WMDs. But they carry all this stuff. Here, here's just a list of, because uh, there's been a lot of 1619. I'm going to try to do a little woke today. But my God in heaven. List of actual historical claims made by Hannah Nicole, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones. The North was only re uh, reluctantly drawn into the Civil War in 1865. Europe was not a continent, but a white supremacist social construct. The 2008 financial crisis somehow used obscure financial tactics from the 1830s that caused slavery. George Washington didn't support the American Revolution until Dunmore Proclamation six months after he took command of the Continental Army. South America and Africa are pre-Columbian trading partners, which is how the Aztecs learned how to build pyramids. The atom bomb was dropped on Hiroshima because the U.S. had already spent money developing it and didn't want to waste it. The U.S. government set off fireworks in New York City in the summer of 2020 as a diversionary tactic to disrupt BLM. It is so entrenched in everything. A veterinarian conference. That racist is going to a veterinarian conference. Well, while they cover that, breaking special counsel finds Mark Zuckerberg election money violated Wisconsin bribery laws. Hmm. 
Liz Cheney, Oath Keeper Joshua James, pleads guilty, seditious conspiracy and capital riot, the Washington Post. Joshua James, the Army, was deployed to Iraq in 2007, your daddy's war on terror. He was nearly killed at 19 in an explosion in Baghdad that killed three people. He won a Purple Heart and suffered PTSD, you heartless ghoul. That's Jesse Kelly to him. CBC's reporting that Ottawa residents are hearing phantom honks because that is Heil Hitler. And as we start getting into it, only 3% of our Afghanistan helpers got pulled out. Only three. New York Times still pushing climate change because they want you to pay $4 a gallon. Don't you understand? If you pay expensive gas, they think you'll go green even though you can't afford the fucking car because the starting price is 60 k and then t- in 10 years, it'll be 20000 to replace the fucking battery. Now it's 10, I think. They even ran articles this week. Jesus Christ. You've read the stories about Trump's appeal in rural America, but there's another side that's often left out. Rural Democrats who feel abandoned by a party they fear has stopped fighting to win places they live in. In the pandemic darkest days, a man living across the street from a Methodist church in a small town raised a flag in front of his house in Basel with the world. Fuck Biden. I did that. We've never seen this before. It's Joanne Fitzpatrick, a Democrat from Du Bois, Iowa, running through a tally in her head of anti-Biden signs that still cover her town and surrounding communities. I'm not approved by any stretch, but it's offensive. We've just never seen this level of vulgarity after an election. Okay. They only read the New York Times. You didn't see it. There they did articles about the brave Antifa and how awesome they are. In a civilized society, we just don't do that. Really. Hmm. They even ran articles. He's got a comeback. He's coming back. We're going to carry his water. On Afghan- on uh, Ukraine, it's this. Experts say kids in war zones are increased risk of anxiety and depression. Do you think? But the most important part of it is this. Hate to say it, but we need to increase oil and gas out, but immediately. Extraordinary times demand extraordinary measures. Obviously, this would neg- negatively affect Tesla, but sustainable energy solutions simply cannot react instantaneously to make up for Russian oil and gas exports. That's a guy who runs a fucking green energy outfit. But he sees it. These people can't see it. They, they just can't see it. They spend all their time in the bubble and before we go into the the major sound bites here here's just a few things that i found um in the media pushing back just a little Republican Governor of Iowa, Kim Reynolds, uh, with a harsh critique uh, of President Biden and his speech. She, too, uh, Dana, like uh, like President Biden, started off talking about foreign policy and then quickly pivoted uh, to a speech largely focused on domestic policy. One uh, item she had to say about uh, the items leading up to the run-in, the run-up, rather, of Putin's invasion, she said, waiving sanctions on Russian pipelines while limiting oil production at home. Um, That's a reference to the fact that there was a big effort in the Congress and and bipartisan supported to sanction 
uh, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, a natural gas pipeline from Russia to Germany, which Biden and the White House pushed back on because they felt like that would alienate Germany, mm -hmm. a key ally in NATO. Uh, ultimately, everybody got to where Ted Cruz was even happy. Mm -hmm. uh, but it took a, took a long time. And yeah, it was more important to the Biden administration to have Germany on board with their coalition than to, to impose those sanctions at that point. And if you look at what has happened over the past week, that strategy from the Biden administration was right. Because had the Biden administration listened to uh, and mostly Republicans, but some Democrats on Capitol Hill saying be more aggressive, first and foremost, about Nord Stream 2, about the pipeline uh, that was is built uh, from Russia to, to give uh, natural gas to Germany, but also even more broadly, so many voices uh, on the Republican side, but even the, the chairman of the, of, the, of the Foreign uh, Foreign Relations Committee saying uh, we have to be more robust in sanctioning. The Biden administration said we're not going to do it. And it's because they were trying to make sure that the European allies and the U.S. were in lockstep. And by waiting, they actually made that happen because uh, the, the EU, the, the NATO allies, everybody came together in a much more intense, aggressive way with these economic sanctions that everybody, anybody ever imagined. You've never made that mistake. It is true. You've been stalwart in your opposition to Vladimir Putin. The same cannot be said for the leader of your party, Donald Trump. Uh, last night, he finally condemned the invasion, but he also repeated his praise of Putin, calling him smart. Earlier in the week, he called him pretty smart. He called him savvy. He says NATO and the U.S. are dumb. Are you prepared to condemn that kind of rhetoric from the leader of your party? Why can't you condemn Donald Trump for those comments? You're a senior member of the Republican Party. Donald Trump is the leader of the Republican Party. He said last night again, suggested that he would be running for president. When Fox News asked him if he had a message for Vladimir Putin, he said he has no message. Why can't you condemn that? I feel quite confident that if, Donald, that if Barack Obama or Joe Biden said something like that, you'd be first in line to criticize him. President Trump was, former President Trump was out there talking about it last night. I simply don't understand why you can't condemn his praise of Vladimir Putin. Yeah, and you, you know, there are some through lines here. You know, I look at what's happening uh, in, in Ukraine and I see, you know, democracy can be a fragile thing and it feels a bit fragile in America right now. We're seeing, uh, you know, the Republican Party bleed it by a thousand cuts with rampant voter suppression. The Florida uh, Republican controlled state legislature um, just advanced a bill um, that was pushed by the Republican mayor, Ron DeSantis, Florida man, uh, who would create a police force dedicated to pursuing election crimes. This is not a thing. So it's not lost me that we're in uh, a midterm election year. Russia has previously tried to attack our democracy by sowing discord here uh, in the United States, hacking into some of our democratic uh, systems. What's concerning, though, to me, Congresswoman, which I want your opinion on, there have been Republican voices who are uh, espousing Russian talking points, who are regurgitating some of the same things Vladimir Putin said. We've seen that on uh, Fox News from folks like Tucker Carlson, and we've even heard it from some uh, elected members of Congress. How will you navigate that as we're watching democracy uh, in peril really all across the globe? Well, we really have to call it out, and we can't forget that under Donald Trump, I mean, if people think that elections don't have consequences and their votes don't matter, imagine, Tiffany, what it would be like right now. 
Yamish, I think this uh, is a key part, this speech, of his reset, right, that we've been talking about for weeks and weeks and weeks thematically, unity amid crisis. But, boy, it's tough to turn a State of the Union into something. Does the White House feel like they move the needle at all? When I was talking to Democrats ahead of the speech, what they really wanted was President Biden to give a speech that would hit that would hit heads and hearts. They wanted him to talk about the situation and the challenges, but also leave people feeling confident. And the White House does feel as though the president projected confidence, whether it was on what he has been saying for a long time is the, is the fight between democracy and autocracy, or when he was being empathetic and saying, we're going to try to do our best to get our hands around COVID, but we understand there may be other variants. So the White House is feeling very good this morning as the president heads to Wisconsin, the vice president heads to North Carolina. That said, there are critics, including Democrats, some really wanted him to tie the fight for democracy um, in Ukraine to the voting rights struggles and the challenges with American democracy here at home. He did not do that. The other thing um, that I heard from critics, especially Cory Bush on Twitter, was that he didn't talk about sort of African-Americans being killed at two to three times the rate of white Americans. He talked about funding the police and supporting them there. But there are a lot of people who I'm talking to this morning who say he could have done more to talk about that struggle still going forward. And I'm curious... You know, to me, this moment of Bloody Sunday and what we're seeing in Europe, there is a connection. It's a fight for freedom. It's a fight for democracy. And, and Rev, it's a, it's a statement I thought we would hear from the president on Tuesday that connected the two. He didn't quite do that. I imagine you will be. I certainly will be, and I think that you said it perfectly, Chuck, and I wish the president had said it. You cannot fight, and you should, for the right uh, for the people in Ukraine to have a democratic state and make decisions based on voting and then not deal with that same right to be upheld here in America, where we're looking at laws being changed in Alabama, where we'll be this weekend, in Texas, in North Carolina, and on, where you have going up to the Supreme Court this whole question of an independent state doctrine, where they're trying to say that state courts should not be able to even stop state legislators from changing voting regulations and voting districts. So as we look for and pray for the people in Ukraine, we need to also deal domestically. And I think that connection is very clear and we need to make it clear. And I will be doing that in the sermon at Brown Chapel on Sunday morning. We are dealing with a voting emergency in this country as we deal with Ukraine, and we need to deal with it. And that's why this weekend in Selma is extremely important, because we need to underscore that we cannot be global liberators. On gas, you, you just said that, you know, less supply raises prices. It's not in our strategic interest to reduce the supply. Yeah. We also know, you know, the president as recently as yesterday talked about increasing domestic manufacturing to bring down prices on uh, inflated items like goods. So why not apply the same logic to energy and increase domestic production here? Well, there are 9,000 approved oil leases that the oil companies are not tapping into currently, so I would ask them that question. Is there nothing that the administration can do to get those providers back to pre-pandemic levels? Do you think the oil companies don't have enough money to drill on the places that have been pre-approved? Just asking. 
I would, I would point that question to them, and we can talk about it more tomorrow when you learn more. Do you think that opening the Keystone Pipeline and having more energy-friendly policies might do that? The Keystone Pipeline has never been operational. It would take years for that to have any impact. During that, those years where it would you know, take to bring down prices, as you're saying, we should just continue to buy Russian oil? Well, again, Jackie, I think you're familiar with a number of steps we've taken, a historic release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Well, we can, well, let me finish. What we can do over time, and what this is all a reminder of in the President's view, is our need to reduce our reliance on oil. As long as we're buying Russian oil, though, aren't we financing the war? Well, Jackie, again, uh, it's only about 10% of what we're importing. Uh, I've not made any announcement about any decision on that front, but our objective here and our focus is making sure that any step we take maximizes the impact on President Putin and minimizes it on the American. And just quickly, uh, there's a Washington Post event um, earlier today where John Bolton said that um, Trump, quote, may well have withdrawn from NATO in a second term um, and that Putin was, quote, waiting for that. And I'm wondering if you have any comment on that. Well, I think that's, um, I saw those comments. Um, you know, another reason why the American people are uh, grateful, the majority of the American people, that President Biden has not taken a page out of his predecessor's playbook as it relates to global engagement and global leadership, because certainly we could be in a different place. I mean, there's no question that the strength and unity of NATO uh, has been um, a powerful force uh, in this moment. Um, and it may take longer time uh, to have the, uh, the hopeful impact, but, uh, you know, that is the strengthening of NATO, we think, is, uh, no, is unquestionably good for our security here in the United States and for, the global, for global security. Go ahead, Jarvis. Finally, the president is approaching his State of the Union in a pretty difficult political position right now. 37% approval rating. Democrats trailing badly in the midterm polling. A majority in our recent poll out this morning even questioned the president's mental capacity. How is he going to turn that around on Tuesday night? And how much has his State of the Union been changed by this war in Ukraine? Well, George, I think there's no question uh, that in the State of the Union, uh, the American people and anybody watching around the world will hear the president talk about the efforts he has led over the past several months to build a global coalition to fight, ag up against, fight against the autocracy and the efforts of President Putin to invade a foreign country. That is certainly something that is present in all of our lives and certainly in the president's life in this moment. But what people will also hear from President Biden is his optimism and his belief in the resilience uh, of the American people and the strength of the American people. And you know, George, from covering State of the Unions for some time, that, that it is about delivering a message to the public at a moment in time. And if you look back when President Obama gave his first State of the Union, it was during the worst financial crisis in a generation. When President Bush gave his state, first State of the Union, it was shortly after 9-11. Leaders lead during crises. That's exactly what President Biden is doing. He'll speak to that, but he's also going to speak about his optimism about what's ahead and what we all have to look forward to. You know, I was at the State Department. The president was the vice president the last time Russia invaded Ukraine. This is a pattern of horror from this president, from President Putin and from the cronies around him. Sometimes we think it's just all a dream that we stuck in, inside some kind of a video game because you just, uh, you live uh, in a quiet society and then you hear bombings and then you wake up to the sound of bombings. I don't want to go outside. I'm literally scared for my life.
all my friends left the city. My neighbors left my floor and I think my building. This is not a very rainbow-friendly place. So lives for trans people are very bleak here. If you have male gender in your passport, they will not uh, let you go abroad. They will not uh, uh, let you through. A war within a war, truly, truly. Every noise from outside is a warning sign. It was hell living as a trans person in, Ky in Kiev and Ukraine. We feel invisible, truly. Like we're not people, like we're not human. It's truly how we feel. That last soundbite coincides with how these aren't serious people transgender rights in the middle of a fucking war oh yeah washington free beacon policy on military service a transgender person and person with gender dysphoria training module commanders at all levels vignette let me see if i can zoom this up there we go we're in the we're in the money Vignette, soldier was assigned male at birth, says he identifies as a female, soldier lives as a female in his off-duty hours, he has no medical diagnosis, does not plan to seek medical treatment, and does not experience significant distress relating to his gender identity, soldier to not, is not requesting to be treated as a female while on duty, consider and responsibilities, treat the soldier with dignity and respect, no further action is required, soldier later requests it, get him in there, two, diagnosis, soldier is assigned female at birth, she tells her first sergeant that she identifies as a male and would like to be treated as a male. She has not yet seen a military medical provider. Treat soldier dignity spent. A former soldier that the Army recognized soldier's gender by the soldier's gender marked and deers. Coincide with the gender marker, the soldier's responsible meeting all standards for uniform and grooming, body composition, blah, 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 blah. Vice soldier see military medical provider. We're doing all this. All of this. For 0.7% of the public. 0.7. Did I say 0.7? I want to say 0.7. Because you got to be fucking kidding me. And, and my favorite soundbite of all those I just played, literally, was this seems to be a pattern. It's a pattern that they do shit when it's a Democrat, and it's a pattern every time shit in the world happens, we link it to voting rights. I mean, you saw all that. Attack Republicans and say they're the problem. And the media never asked those key questions. Now, CNN, 
is so fucking concerned with misinformation. There, there are fucking threads everywhere. Twitter pushed this one out. That's how I saw it. First and foremost, beware of difference between misinformation and disinformation. While they can seem interchangeable, the difference lies in the intent. Oh, but that doesn't lie in the intent of uh, any other words that you don't like. Intent is not there. You're just a racist, transphobe, homophobe. Yeah, I got you. Okay. Second, visual misinformation gains a lot of attention. We've seen time and time again old photos and videos recirculating during time of crisis. You can run reverse image searches. Going deeper, you can run checks on all our five pillars of visual verification. Provenance, source, date, location, verify accounts. I mean, this goes on for fucking ever. But it wasn't good enough. Because fat boy Tater, he ran a whole segment on it. How much of this does seem to you like a, a change in how a, a, the people around the world can consume and understand warfare because of all the images and content in our feeds? Is this a turning point? Well, I think it, it can do what social media does. It makes things both more real and immediate and sort of feel more tangible and also more potentially misleading because each one of these TikTok videos is a tiny little snapshot of a tiny little moment of time, often without any other overlaying context. And so you really would have to spend an enormous time with some real background to begin to piece together all of the pieces of the TikTok jigsaw puzzle. So on the one hand, it's serving the, the purpose of reminding of Americans that this war is incredibly brutal and we're collectively seeing incredible resilience from the Ukrainian people. At the same time, none of it is giving you an overall strategic view. None of it is really giving you a sort of an idea of where are Russian forces, what are the real casualties, what are the disposition of Ukrainian forces. All of that remains opaque and mysterious at the same time that you kind of feel as if you're seeing more war more up close and making war more personal. But I do think it's had the effect, honestly, of stiffening the, the resolve of the, of the Western world more broadly. We've seen European countries mm. really fall into line quickly on stiffer sanctions than a lot of people thought they'd agree with. Just Germany just now announces an enormous increase in defense spending. And I do think part of that is due to the immediacy of these reports and the inspirational nature of Ukrainian resistance that is shaming a lot of Western governments, quite frankly, into action. Bianca, what's your view of this? You're inside CNN just like I am. You see all the alerts that come through. You know there's hundreds of people trying to vet all the unverified information that's out there. Uh, how do you see this going down? Listen, on the one hand, it's sort of a confluence of barbaric actions at the hand of a now, let's call him a madman, um, because only a madman acts in such ways, in a civilized world where technology is really helping us uh, sort through fact versus fiction. And this is something that Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin, through their propaganda machine, had thought for years that they had been successful in, in avoiding Russians, specifically at home, from being aware of their actions 
relations internationally, and yet we still have some really brave journalists. And I know you're going to be speaking with one uh, one of my friends uh, coming up in this hour, Ekaterina Katrikadze from TV Rain. It's the only last yeah. independent network news network in Russia right now, and they are once again being hounded uh, by regulators, and they can only be found on YouTube. They used to be televised statewide as well, and they are now up against a wall reporting and trying to get accurate reports out to their viewers of what they are seeing on the ground, and what they're seeing on the ground clearly differs from what they are seeing on state television at home. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jane Lividenko, you specialize in disinformation. We can show a bunch of examples on screen of videos that are not what they seem to be. There's been a flood of this. Uh, I'll show a video showing paratroopers getting ready to invade. It was shared on TikTok and Twitter, but it was actually authentic video of Russian parachute jumpers, but from 2015. That's the kind of content that's out there that may look real, but is not relevant to this current conversation. There's been a lot of that. So Jane, what are your tips for people who are trying to navigate social media right now? Look, uh, propaganda is a part of every war. Um, and the point of propaganda coming out of Russia right now is to undermine Ukrainian narratives and to scare Ukrainian people. Um, Ukrainians are not scared. They understand information warfare like nobody else. In 2014, during the revolution, uh, we've come up against it. During the annexation of Crimea, we've come up against it. And during the uh, horrible MH17 tragedy, where Russia tried to cover up its role um, in shooting down a civilian airplane, uh, we came up against that propaganda. Um, and mm. so, of course, the main thing to do is to get your sources from people on the ground and to understand that even people on the ground may sometimes misinterpret what is happening in the moment because the situation is uh, changing from minute to minute, um, but will always do their best to correct it. Um, and uh, although there may be confusion when you look at the flood of information across social media, um, on yeah. Telegram in particular, public channels that act uh, much like Twitter does um, in the Western world uh, keep careful track of uh, Russian forces, Russian force movements, um, and disinformation. Uh, Ukrainian television debunks disinformation in real time. So there is a huge yeah. effort, um, not just within the country, but also internationally to get accurate information out to people. The same, same question for you, Julia. What tips, what advice do you share with folks about not getting fooled online right now? Well, first and foremost, if you're not sure that the source is credible, err on, on the side of caution and don't share it. If you share something, it turns out not to be correct. Don't just issue a follow-up tweet or post. Delete the original post, and you may explain why, but don't let it continue um, spreading. And uh, yeah. also uh, what uh, Jane mentioned, the demoralizing effect of what Russia is filling the info space with, um, that could spread to our own media where they continuously talk about how how fast Ukraine is expected to fall. Let's not do that. Let's fill that space with uh, discussions about what this conflict truly is about and contradicting Russia's narrative. Right now, he's left. CNN's pulled, BBC's pulled, everybody's gone. So that's why they're doing it. They're so scared that you'll make your own opinion. Should have gave a warning, but I figure everybody out there is pretty much an adult. 
This is what's happening. And they're worrying about your Twitter likes. Those are piles of bodies. I could just do a whole show on the images that are all over the place. Or I could just play this video.
Да. Там две овчарки, вторая сзади. Ну, да. Боже, бедняга. Там. А вот так лежит. И с хозяином до последнего. Да. real war it's not even what i fought in this is no shit war they're fighting like 1944 and we have everybody who's in charge just they just don't get it but this is what's happening Приезжали на ту территорию, сталкивались тоже со страшной картиной. Это разорванные тела, обгоревшие тела. Это, в конце концов, просто состояние опасности, когда ты попадаешь и под обстрел, когда тебя там чуть не пугают, не тычут тебя автоматом. То есть это все, конечно, не просто было. В сентябре это сразу стало понятно, вот даже в офисе, сидя здесь, когда мы объявили о создании телефона горячей линии, вот есть здесь присутствуют люди, которые, собственно, были на грани нервного срыва. Почему? Потому что им звонили много родственников и просили, благали о помощи, чтобы разыскать. И психика не всегда выдерживала. Хорошая людина, это хороший батько, хороший человек. 15 років ми разом, хлопця, ви бачили, 12 років син. Копія, всі звички, повадки, манери, зовнішність, багато в чому схожі. Це папа на роботі. Я не вірю, що це зі мною, що це з нами. Страшно дуже. Страшно, що ти нічого не можеш. Страшно, що ти робиш, а ніхто... Ну, ніхто... Страшно, коли йдеш в церкву і не знаєш, куди ставити свічку. Залкокочу за здрав'я.
Под одной точкой может быть найдено одно тело, может быть несколько даже братских захоронений. Вначале у нас были договоренности на уровне вооруженных сил Украины с представителями ДНР, так называемые, о том, что они разрешают выехать на свою территорию, которая не подконтрольна на тот момент была украинским властям, для того, чтобы мы смогли собрать тела. Знаете, мы уже сколько лет занимаемся, поисковики нашей организации занимаются поиском без вести пропавших в годы Великой Отечественной войны, в годы Первой мировой войны. Вот такой жетон, если видите. Благодаря такому жетону нам удалось опознать человека, это с Первой мировой войны. Это вот такое имя сохранилось, благодаря такому жетону. Одно дело, ты работаешь в мирных условиях, когда прошло много десятилетий, и другое дело, когда ты работаешь в экстремальных условиях, когда есть мины, когда есть обстрелы, когда жестокость вокруг торжествует, понимаете, это совсем другие. Поэтому, конечно, у нас война, та ситуация, наша миссия, она изменила нас всех навсегда. И вы знаете, вот когда я смотрю сейчас по социальным сетям, по новостям, я смотрю, время от времени происходит перезахоронение и отзывы тех людей, которым удалось все-таки смириться с потерей и похоронить, отдать дань, должную дань памяти погибшим. Они быстрее свыкаются с этой потерей. Они уже есть могила, обретают могилу. Это очень ценно на самом деле, когда ты можешь прийти и положить цветы. Это страшные муки, когда ты не знаешь, что случилось. Уж лучше такая горькая правда, да, ну, чем вообще безизвестность. Слава Украине! Китай, нахуй! Китай! Я ебал в рот.
Ты, сука, российский. Ух ты, блядь. Блять, нас съебывать, нахуй, чуйка. Не, ну они в уже, все. Ебать, как он долго по земле хуячил, ты бачил? Блять, их тут реально дохуя. Вот еще летят. Это пиздец. Это просто пиздец. Уже штук 20 пролетело. Не видно украинского герба. Точно российские. Прямо над хатами. Прямо ось над хатами летают падлы. Полетели в сторону аэропорта. Бомблять аэропорт. Чути, что идет бій. Уже штук 30 нарахував точно. Сука, мразь, нахуй. Что там мразь? Опа, диви, диви, покрути, опа, покрути, опа. Он пойдет. Падает. На саги, ебай. На саги падает вверх. Ебаный в рот. Бля.
Раз, два, три, четыре, пять, шесть, семь, восемь, девять, десять. Одиннадцать, двенадцать, тринадцать, четырнадцать, пятнадцать, шестнадцать, семнадцать. Есть! Есть, блядь! Два! 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 Сбили, сука! Сука, мразь, нахуй. Что там мразь? Опа. Левый, левый, покрути, опа, покрути, опа, покрути, опа. Да, он пойдет. Падай. На саге, ебать. На саге
я всем на эфир сообщил об этом сразу. Просто у нас здесь пять номера. О, Нет. Надо забрать. Надо забрать. Да он кучу сейчас положить, а потом забрать. Это гуманитарную помощь везде. Вашим. Нашим. We've lost 7,000 dudes. They don't even fucking care. They're just putting it all out there like old school. They're not precision bombing. They give no fucks. And we're talking about transgender and saving the planet that isn't even dying. Long thread about how I think the first 96 hours have gone. Still very early, incomplete impression. The initial Russian operation was premised on terrible assumption about Ukraine's ability and will to fight. The Russian operation was focused on getting Kyiv quickly. Why did Moscow choose this course of action? A few theories. They didn't take Ukraine as military seriously. They wanted to avoid attrition and devastation because of the consequences for people's goals in Ukraine. It is also possible that military planners genuinely wanted to avoid inflicting high levels of destruction given how popular this war was going. 
What I've seen so far suggests that Russian troops were unaware they were even going out. Plenty of proof of that. Videos are captured thinking they're going on training. And, of course, all of us have seen the video of the text from the soldier, purported text, of him saying, you know, mama, the mama one that was read at the U.N., um, and, and that jives with everything I was ever trained on about Russia. Only the officers knew what the fuck's going on. This is unworkable concept of operations. Seems they tried to win quickly and cheaply via thunder runs, hoping to avoid the worst of sanctions, Western outrage. outrage. However, this is barely a few days in the war. Ukraine has done remarkable. On the shambotic effort, Russia units are not really frightening fighting as BTGs are driving down roads with small detachments, pushing recon and VDV units forward, tanks often by themselves and vice versa. Fire and enable is not used decisively outside of fighting NW northwest of Kirk or Kiev. Kiev, sorry, I can't read today. Too bad my glasses. Have a lot of smaller detachment tanks, IFVs, and often recon on VDV units pressing down roads and into cities, small formations regularly outrunning logistics. Beyond large number of units strewn out in small detachments and checkpoints, we have the inverse situation as well. Long trains of Russians, and we've all seen it, it's insane. As companies and platoons run ahead to seize points, logistics can't keep up. The Russian failure is driven by the fact that they're attempting to conduct a full-scale invasion without the military operations that would require. The truth is that large parts of the Russian military have yet to enter the war with many of their capabilities still unused. In the first four days, Russia's tactical aviation, except for some Su-25s, literally sat on the sidelines. The Russian military sought to use cruise ballistic missiles to destroy, suppress UKR air defensive targets. However, they're not flying caps or offensive counter air. Except for heavy shelling around Kharkiv, use of fires has been limited compared to how the Russian military typically operates. The bulk of the Russian military is yet to enter the fight outside Kharkiv. Most of the 1st Guards, Tank Army, and 20th Army are just sitting there. Another point, Russian losses are significant, and they have had a number of troops captured, but they have been advancing along some axes. Hence my next thought. In a desperate effort to keep the war hidden from the Russian public, framing this as a Donbass operation, Moscow has completely ceded the information environment to Ukraine. It won't comment on the host of official claims made in the war so far, except that I think Kiev is doing a great job shaping perception. Looking at the military effort, I think the Russian forces are getting some basics really wrong, but they're also learning things that are probably not true about the Russian military as well. They're not really fighting the way they train. The assumptions have Grozny 1994 vibe. What's next? Russia political leadership is still conceding their plans or failure. It was going to add that I've seen and read other explainer threads out there around the Russian army failure. I differ from some of those explanations. They're generally not coming from Russian military experts, and four days into war might be a bit early. Also looking at the next five days, see major adjustments, and we've seen it. They're bombing, shelling, using their toss more attack air has been employed. Helicopters getting roached everywhere. RT is off the air. Now, I watched RT last time I told you. It's a, it's a propaganda network. Just like MSNBC, CNN, ABC, NBC, CBS, and PBS, Washington Post, New York Times. It's the same fucking thing. And the problem I have with it is they took it off. Other things that have happened, ABC, uh, freaking Visa just stopped. And people are staring at it like, oh, that's good. Fuck Russia. 
Yeah, you forget. You're next. Every time we let them do something like this, you're next. They're just gonna let it happen. They don't fucking care. They, they just don't fucking care. They've already used the words they're using with Russia for you and I. And these wizards say shit like this. Okay, so besides it being economically painful, why can't we just airlift them all out? I used to be a nationalist, but not for a long time now. Are you an American? I am. Why? I speak for itself. The website is free. Nationalism is when you refer to stay in your established community and neighborhood. Screaming for is a prime number and arguing with anyone who, that disagrees the hope that something will educate them. I feel like your question was just a thinly veiled attempt to criticize Ukraine citizens for being nationalists, pretending the, defending the country. If they were to flee, I'm curious where you think the line should be drawn. I wasn't intended that way. I was honestly just extremely ignorant. I'm about borders, but I don't understand the situation and want to understand it better. Yep, sometimes you just have to sit back and take it all in. The year is 2030. Vladimir Putin has occupied every spot on earth while the exception of Kathy Wright's apartment where several billion people are now crowded. I mean, people, these people are fucking idiots. You got Sam Stein. Oh, why well, fucking fuck? That's an old thing. We don't need that. Here we go. Trump, who discussed pulling the U.S. from NATO, takes credit for NATO's existence in a new statement. Trump, who threatened to withhold weapons, funding the Ukraine to get dirt on Biden, takes credit for Ukrainian weapons in the same statement. You know what's so sad about all this? They have to butt Trump everything. But it was lefties that Putin fucked with, 2014 and now. And there's a video showing Biden telling Ukraines, fire that motherfucker so my son can get some more money for the big guy. Armies pre-positioning stock everywhere while they're doing transgender classes. People think Europe depends on Russia for energy because it lacks its own, but 15 years ago, Europe was us. And if anybody believes this line they're pushing that this is going to help us get... It's not. When you don't... I mean, they're even using lies about it. There's a whole bunch of fucking uh, permits out there. They take permits on all sorts of shit while they're trying to frack. Doesn't mean they can drill them all. And you won't let drilling happen everything. You won't open up the pipeline with a lame excuse that it'll take two years. In two years, our gas is going to be $7 a gallon. You watch me. This isn't changing. This motherfucker has three more years. He is going to fuck up energy. My electricity bill right now in the spring is like Christmas. It's 270 we're not using a kilowatt more. It went from 170 and 270 and 18 months of Biden. NASCAR owner sending 1 million rands of ammo to Ukraine. It actually turned into Samar- Samaritan's purse. Sorry, poos. Psaki fakes brutal question on energy. Why not increase domestic production? 
Is there nothing? Okay, I got to play this shit. You just said that, you know, less supply raises prices. It's not in our strategic interest to reduce the supply. We also know, you know, the president as recently as yesterday talked about increasing domestic manufacturing to bring down prices on uh, inflated items like goods. So why not apply the same logic to energy and increase domestic production here? Well, there are 9,000 approved oil leases that the oil companies are not tapping into currently. So I would ask them that question. Is there nothing that the administration can do to get those providers back to pre-pandemic levels? Do you think the oil companies don't have enough money to drill on the places that have been pre-approved? Just asking. I would I would point that question to them, and we can talk about it more tomorrow when you learn more. Do you think that opening the Keystone Pipeline and having more energy-friendly policies might do that? The Keystone Pipeline has never been operational. It would take years for that to have any impact. I know a number of members of Congress have suggested that, but that is a proposed solution that has no relationship or would have no impact on what the problem is. We hear all agree is an issue. So during that those years where it would you know take to bring down prices, as you're saying, we should just continue to buy Russian oil? Well, again, Jackie, I think you're familiar with a number of steps we've taken, a historic release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Well, we can, well, let me finish. What we can do over time and what this is all a reminder of in the president's view is our need to reduce our reliance on oil. The Europeans need to do that. We need to do that. If we do more to invest in clean energy, more to invest in other sources of of energy, that's exactly what we can do to prevent this uh, from happening in the future. We welcome any Republicans from joining us in that effort. Go ahead. As long as we're buying Russian oil, though? Aren't we financing the war? Well, Jackie, again, uh, it's only about 10% of what we're importing. Uh, I've not made any announcement about any decision on that front, but our objective here and our focus is making sure that any step we take maximizes the impact on President Putin and minimizes it on the American people. And anyone who's calling for uh, an end to the carve-out should be clear that that would raise prices. Go ahead. It's what they want. They don't give a fuck. They don't care how much it hurts people, especially the African-Americans they talk about so much. Um, Katie Pavlich at the Hill, Blinken's diplomatic failure. I, I really want you to think about, if you listen to any of his speeches, the guy says 45 words to say a word. He's a wordsmith. Um, the Providence Journal, McCusker, Secretary of State Blinken must be fired. It's just true. And for next podcast, dispatch from anti-CPAC. Uh, folks, this, um, I, I don't even, I don't even understand. I just don't understand how those people call themselves, they try to call themselves fucking conservative but they're not now if you look through everything i put out today you don't hear anything about masks because all of a sudden they became republicans because it's it's time we we got to change it's 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 that time of year we're gonna go back to a fucking election and all of a sudden boom we have a different view of what's going on so, uh, I got a little more time. Let me try to do uh, a little woke section. Turn it up, turn it on. Rock it like we've had the 
Let's get a walk. Good evening. It's part of the excitement of a Titans home game. The dramatic military flyover timed exactly for the end of the national anthem. But now News Channel 5 investigates has discovered one recent flyover may have crossed the line from dramatic to dangerous. As our chief investigative reporter Phil Williams discovered that flyover two weeks ago at Nissan Stadium has now captured the FAA's attention. Phil. Well, guys, the FAA tells me it is, quote, following up with the military about exactly what happened with what was supposed to be a routine flyover. But as you're about to see, there are questions about whether fans may have been put at risk. It was a salute to service intended to honor the men and women who've served our nation. But this salute involving four combat helicopters from the Army's 101st Airborne was a salute that Tennessee Titans fans will likely never forget. This was the view from inside the cockpit of one of those helicopters posted to the Titans' social media. Instead of flying over Nissan Stadium, the choppers went through, eye level with fans in the upper decks. And this is the view from the stands. As a flyover turned into what one veteran pilot called a fly-in. While many loved the spectacle, on social media, one person noted some people were above the flyover. Another remarked that flyover was a little too close to knocking down the flags and camera. Another called it spooky. Don't remember any other flyover when they flew that low. General reaction, uh, yeah, it was unsafe. Larry Williams is a retired aviation safety inspector. He notes that FAA rules say military flyovers should be accomplished at 1,000 feet above the highest obstacle. What happened here was something Williams had never seen. How would you rate how dangerous this was? It was, I don't know how, how to say how dangerous it was. It was very dangerous, let's put it that way. This video shot from a nearby high-rise shows how the four helicopters flew down into the stadium and among the fans. And this video shot from a nearby bar shows the steep climb of the choppers out of the stadium. But what worried the former FAA inspector was something we spotted that was much harder to see. Watch as we slow down this video and the helicopters pass right beneath what appears to be a cable of some sort stretched across the stadium. They went under that cable and uh, it appeared just a few feet from there. So if they had just gotten uh, off of altitude a few feet, it would have been a disaster. And here it is again. From this angle, the cable is clearly visible, but from the cockpit camera, it's not as easy to see. And I wonder whether they saw the cable before they got there. What is the potential with, with that cable across the stadium? Well, if you hit the cable, especially the helicopter, uh, more than likely a crash. 
What happened at Nissan Stadium on that day, the FAA veteran says, is something that never would have been tolerated from civilian pilots. More than likely, the, uh, those pilots would have their license suspended or revoked. If these had been civilian pilots. Yeah. Now, a spokesperson for the 101st told me in the last hour that the... Erin <laughs> Harbaugh is a single mom in Washington, D.C. Her daughter Sloan just turned two. Happy birthday, baby. She's exactly as old as the U.S. fight against COVID-19 to the very day, January 21st. She was born the first day that the pandemic was declared in the United States. The deadly virus from China arrives in the U.S. The CDC revealing the first case of the deadly coronavirus here at home. It's been a challenging two years for parents. And with this latest Omicron surge, many say they're at a breaking point. This month, a group of moms in Boston met up outside just to scream in frustration. <laughs> It's been especially hard on the families of the nearly 20 million American kids under age five who still aren't eligible for the vaccine. It feels like a dire pandemic for parents of zero to five year olds. People don't realize that if you have a young child, you're still stuck in March 2020. In some ways, I feel like this is the hardest part that we've been through so far because it's been really, really hard. We spoke to parents across the country with very young children who tell us they feel like the rest of the world has moved on, but they can't. I think most people are just going through their lives now that they're vaccinated. I think that parents of kids under five are in this reality right now that a lot of people are no longer in. Daycares and preschools full of unvaccinated children and one positive case sends everyone into quarantine and parents scrambling. Anaga Fadkule from Portland, Oregon, works in a hospital. Her husband works from home. Their three-and-a-half-year-old son, Arush, was in daycare, but it shut down twice in January due to COVID outbreaks among the staff. They decided just to keep him at home. It feels like a very reckless time to push your toddler into daycare and be like, okay, whatever happens, happens. Rebecca yeah. Sangvi is a public school teacher in Washington, D.C. Their five-year-old daughter, Hannah, is in kindergarten and she's vaccinated. Two-year-old son, Leo, is in daycare. But I do think that there's not enough attention on the difficulties that the families who can't do that are facing with kids being quarantined, taking time off work, often unpaid. Rebecca and other parents describe that heart-stopping moment when the phone rings or a text message pops up with those dreaded words, your child was in close contact with someone who tested positive. I could go home from right now and I could find out that my next 10 days are wiped out. To find out the day before, oh, your child's not going to have any daycare coverage or childcare coverage um, for 14 days is devastating. You had plans, you had meetings, you had deliverables, and now you can't get any of it done. Deborah Schoenfeld is a mom of three in Maryland. Her four-year-old's daycare has shut down so many times, she's now keeping him at home. I can't even go a full month with having childcare. Many parents say they don't have backup care if their child has to quarantine. And at this age, kids can't be left alone or just sent off to play. So when we have a Zoom meeting or a conversation with a client, uh, I tell them, it's like, hey, sorry, but if you hear anything in the background, that's my three-year-old. <laughs> Eddie Suarez is a real estate agent and father of two. He and his husband have had to get creative. I have to take even my kids to 
work. I had an issue with a client where she told me that it was unprofessional for me to show up with my, my, with my kids. We're talking about real existential threats to family survival right now at a time when so many families thought that we had rounded the corner. Aaron Lebo has three children under the age of five. All three were sick with COVID in December. I'm so thankful that we got through it um, relatively unscathed, but we are lucky. Aaron tells us she's eager to get her children vaccinated to keep them safe. We've been thrown completely off equilibrium and we will find a new normal. So when can parents like Aaron expect their kids to be eligible for vaccination? Dr. Anthony Fauci says he expects the FDA will soon have data from the vaccine makers about their studies of kids under age five. My hope it's that it's going to be within the next month or so and not much later than that. That day can't come soon enough for stressed out parents like Aaron Harbaugh. I cannot financially, mentally, emotionally, you know, do this much longer and I don't really have any alternatives um, right now. Experts say parents should be kind to themselves and it's okay to be frustrated. Find things that you're grateful for that you can focus on that are positive. You can't. Iris, who identifies as queer, always loved learning about the world from her hometown of Katy, Texas, until this fall when her district started banning books. I think students of color and queer students are especially taking this hard. An NBC News investigation found that the Katy Independent School District is one of at least a dozen Texas districts that have removed books about race, gender, and sexual identity after a statewide surge of parent complaints. Texas Governor Greg Abbott called for criminal charges against staff who provide kids with pornographic books. Do librarians feel safe in their jobs right now? In some cases, librarians are being asked to do things that really are against their code of ethics, and that makes them fearful to speak up. One of the banned books Carolyn loves is George Johnson's memoir about their black queer childhood, which includes a brief passage about sexual abuse George experienced as a child. In January, Katie Schools declared it not appropriate for any level. They can remove our books, but they can't remove our stories. What do you make of the fact that people have used the words pornographic and vulgar? They don't want their students reading about queer people. My book is not uh, being put out there to excite students about sex. More than half of the books that Katie has removed as a result of all of this have main characters who are LGBTQ. Are people supposed to believe that's just a coincidence? Um, no, I don't think so. I think they should read the books themselves. Katie Schools declined NBC News's request for an interview. Iris, a member of her school's speech and debate team, is no stranger to speaking her mind. I honestly think that they want to keep their children in this protected bubble in which the only opinions they really hear are the ones that they themselves represent. And she feels... Ah, we doing this shit old school. The little bit of crazy music in the background. Let me get them... Get it right. So... The videos you watched there, um, I never covered that, but there was a big deal about an overflight at a um, Titans game, and man, they tried to relieve people. It was fucking unbelievable. You also saw on that little montage, mothers who want to get their five-year-olds vaccinated. Get the fuck out of here, man. And of course... Uh, NBC throwing a Texas uh, removing LGBTQ books from school and literature. They are 
trying to win the culture wars that they can't win. They just, they can't win it because when you break it down, that is a fucking small percentage of people. Sorry, I had to restart the computer, so I'm popping the last article so we can close this pig out, but I wanted to have a woke and Emma's there. We're done. Okay. So, uh, let's move into the leading prosecutors that were trying to get Trump on the bullshit that they were making up. Yeah, they got shit canned. So it looks like that New York case is gone. I found an article and it's from, um, Forbes, the commodification and capitalization of the anti-racism business folks, man, this article is amazing. I mean, we already know about the lady who wrote the, uh, white fragility, how much money she charges and Mr. Coates with his craziness. I mean, it's, it's an industry and we've said it on the show numerous times, how literally after Obama went to overdrive because they don't want to lose their bill. You know, they need their bills. They need their Benjamins. So here is an article from New York Post. Black Lives Matter sent millions to Canada charity to buy a mansion. Then CNN comes in. Black Lives Matter Foundation raised $90 million in 2020 and gave almost a quarter of it to local chapters and organizations. It's covered, but they can't find the rest of the money. Anyway, you cut it. It's not 90 million. It's a billion dollars and nobody can account for shit. Then we get this one. Taxpayer funded study pays gay minors to report sexual activities without parental permission. It was $8 million project since 2012. Hmm. And you wonder why? Here's some more. Here's your sign. This stuff, good Lord. Your children may be receiving gender ideology indoctrination in school during their genetics units. This is genetics. Language. I mean, it's. I'm not even going to show the slides. We all know what's happening. School transition closet allows kids to change into clothes that make them feel like they're, oh, I'm fucking up. Real identity superheroes they are. This is happening. And if you haven't read the article... It is the most shocking stuff to brainwashing the kids and purposely tell them not to talk to kids, not talk to parents. Don't tell your parents. The AT&T skank. Yeah. Shouted her abortion. Man, that is just fucking sick. Then we got uh, Jared Yates Sexton. The CRT conspiracy theories rebranded Nazi-style anti-Semitism that's being used by wealthy donors and their think tanks to weaponize history for their own purposes while radicalizing people to take over local governments. That's what I literally was looking down for because I spilled it last time and I spilled it. <laughs> Getting drunk off a monster. They are trying somehow, some way to articulate that if you don't agree with them, you're a Nazi. And what's new? Because here's Reuters. Oh, I'm backwards. Sorry. There we go. Let me bring this down so you can actually read it. 
School board members across the U.S. have endured a rash of terroristic threats and hostile messages ignited by roiling controversies over the coronavirus, bathroom access for transgender students, and teaching of America's racial history. No, they're not. Parents are only yelling at those meetings because you try to shut them down. So shut the fuck up. Then you got AP. It's focused like a laser on the landslide victory out there in San Francisco. And that's woke people. Democrats voted for it. But of course, it's Republicans. Pounce. The one that got booted off, what'd she say? White supremacy. Of course. Of course. NBC News still trying to hang on to the fucking pandemic. NBC News now reports on how some teachers are thinking of quitting due to states restricting what they can teach. An Indiana school counselor, I can't handle the music, is receiving criticism online after he sent out a memo to parents allowing them to spot their child out of Black History Month lesson. NBC News' Maura Barrett reports on how many teachers are thinking of quitting because they can't brainwash your kids. And then here's the last one that I just... Once again, guide for trigger liberals, how to cope with stressful news cycle of Ukrainian war. You know how you can do it? It's right there. Just remember, everything they're telling you is a fucking lie. It's a lie. And CNN, specifically, They've already left. They're gone. They pulled their people out. So they're just going to be basically for the rest of this conflict. They're just going to be going, hey, Fox News, Fox News, Fox News, Fox News, Fox News. That's all they're going to talk about. They got nothing else. It'll be Fox News, Tucker, Laura Ingram. They're all bad people. We're good people. And Trump. That'll be your coverage from now until the end of the conflict. Because let's be honest, they got nothing to say. It's a damn shame that we are now in another era where a Democrat can't do their job. He didn't unite anything. You notice how that talking point ended? There are more people dying from COVID in Ukraine because of Biden. Biden's inability to articulate. You know, it's a sad thing. I was having a conversation the other day with a guy, and he literally said, I, w- I, w- I wish at least... We had the woke version like Obama. At least you understood what he was saying. It's the same diatribe, but we knew what it was. This guy is just getting mangled on the teleprompter, and he's not going with what he knows. And what he knows is that it's time to put the far left on the back burner, and try to get some people elected. Usually, that's what Democrats are doing right now. And he tried with the State of the Union, 
But even in the end, what did you hear? You heard global warming. You heard fucking transgender rights. And the GOP is trying to fucking stop black people from voting. That's what he did. Because that was in the script. Because it's being written by Meacham. And he's a libtard who pretends to be a historian. So, this wraps up another episode of Flyover Politics Podcast. Share this with family and friends. Go to foppodcast.com where you can find links to Rumble and SoundCloud for all our shows. We are coming up on our sixth anniversary of this show. It will be April 6th, and hopefully I can do a flashback to everything. This week was the 20th anniversary of Operation Anaconda. Wore a shirt for it that day. Just wore my old Rockasan PT shirt. At least I can fit in it. I apologize for not getting another show out. Um, I thought I was going to get Wednesday off. I didn't have Wednesday off. So this week I do have Wednesday off. And so I will be doing a show on Wednesday. It'll be shorter than this one. And hopefully it'll be on other subjects than the war. I hope all of you are safe out there. I know I'm still still getting over COVID. My stomach is still garbage. I have good days. I have bad days. But my wife's still tired. And we're looking. We got sick the beginning of February. So it's been a month. And I'm talking to a lot of people that it's taking them over six weeks to get healthy. That's pretty fucking scary. So I thank you all for listening. I'm sorry that the show isn't what it used to be. But I promise I'm going to get it that way. And I'm going to keep trying to crank out some podcasts, get two a week. Until then, you take care of yourself. See ya Wednesday. Uh